All right, good morning, everybody. Have your Bible with you. Revelation chapter 1 is where you need to turn. Revelation chapter 1. Last week, we continued to cover the introduction of the book of Revelation. We looked at a text that serves as a summary of where we are heading. It is a high-altitude overview of the message and the application of the entire book. We didn't learn a ton of specific details last week, but we saw some general themes that were introduced, which will be teased out in great detail in the weeks and months and maybe even years ahead. We saw John identify with his audience as their brother and their partner in Christ. And as such, he is with them in tribulation, in kingdom, and in perseverance. That's what he says. And so we drew these few applications. Number one, I said we are family. We are partners. And therefore, let us suffer together. And let us worship together. And let us persevere together. I think this togetherness is absolutely essential. And it is something that we are really struggling with right now. uh, Because we are not together as we usually are. And so we're going to have to swim upstream. We're going to have to invest some energy in order to be together. And as we are together, I want to encourage us to embrace suffering. Not to run from all suffering, but to embrace suffering and God's purpose in our suffering. I want to encourage us to worship even when things are difficult. Even when Uh, We put a mask on or we turn the computer on to worship. I want us to worship even when it's difficult. Learning from John on Patmos, who was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, he was worshiping. And I want to encourage us to persevere through the difficulties. You will not find in Revelation or any of the Bible, for that matter, a promise of deliverance from all of our suffering and all of our pain. But you will see a call to persevere. You will see a call to endure everywhere in the Scriptures by faith through the pain unto eternal and final victory that is ours in Christ. Well, this week we're going to get into the first of multiple visions given to John. And it's important to remember that this is the revelation. In other words, it is the unveiling or the disclosure of Jesus Christ. And so it is fitting that the first thing he sees is Jesus himself. And what we are going to see today is so good, but we need to be really careful There is a bit of forest and trees tension as we talk through this text today. And we don't want to miss the forest for the trees. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to zoom out and we're going to get the general concept, which, by the way, is always the thing to do in in apocalyptic literature. We can usually get ourselves in trouble in apocalypse by uh, always zooming way too closely in and looking only at the details and not the general picture. So we're going to zoom out, get the general picture. We are going to zoom in a little bit and see some of those details, uh, some of the cool stuff that's going on in the text. And then we're going to zoom out again so that we don't miss the bigger picture. Bottom line today is that this text that we're going to see is going to teach us what Jesus looks like. It's not going to teach us what he physically appears to be, but rather who he is. It's not intended today to be a literalistic physical description of Jesus Rather, in classic apocalyptical uh, nature, it is intended to symbolically teach us about Jesus. And so today, your notes don't need to be drawings. Like we've taught our kids when they were little to pay attention to the sermon by drawing pictures of what's going on. That would probably be a mistake today. 
Like a mistake today would be to come out of the text with a painting, uh, a literalistic painting of the Lord Jesus here. That's not the point. We're trying to learn who he is, not really what he looks like today. David Platt says, this is maybe the most magnificent picture in all of scripture of the Lord Jesus Christ. If he's even close to write about that, we need to pay attention today, right? If he's even close to write about that, we want to lean in and, and hear uh, what the Lord has to say to us today. So look at it, Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 to 20. We're going to cover a massive amount of ground today, and it's going to be good. Look what God's word says. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were like were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that you would open our eyes today to see Jesus clearly, to see Jesus rightly, to see Jesus glorified. Let us see him not as we imagine him to be, not as we would prefer him to be, not as we would construct him to be in our own minds, but help us to see him as he is, as he was revealed, revealed to John. Give us spiritual eyes to see what John saw through your word this morning. By hearing your word, help us to see and help us to respond properly to the glorious Lord Jesus, to fall down as dead men, to humble ourselves before his greatness, to worship him as the living God, and to tell the world all about him. We ask today that you would change us forever by your grace. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right, look at verse 12. I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. I want you to keep your eyes open as we study through Revelation for the interchange between seeing and hearing throughout the book. John is going to see and hear and write so that we can read. What he sees and what he hears complement each other and form the big picture that we are to receive. You might not know it, but Dylan Luce, our associate pastor, spent most of his life in prison. That's a good way to say it, right? Worked for the Department of Corrections for an entire career, right? And often as we talk in the office and we talk about the text, he shares with me some prison lingo. I'm learning prison lingo from Dylan. And he says one of the things that he hear, heard in prison uh, a lot was, you see what I'm saying? You see what I'm saying? Like that doesn't make any sense, does it? Do you see what I'm saying? No. But we do, right? That's what's going on here in, in Revelation. Do you see what I'm saying? That's what John is going to try to do. He's going to try to show us what he's saying. 
And I want you to notice that the first thing that John catches sight of when he turns around at the sound of this voice are seven golden lampstands. Seven golden lampstands, that drips of temple imagery from the Old Testament, the menorah. Only there in the temple there was one stand that had seven branches. Here we see seven different stands, and yet those seven stands are together. I'm just going to drop that and let you explore that on your own sometime about the the, uh, comparison and the contrast between the menorah in the temple of the Old Testament and the seven lampstands of Revelation. There's some interesting stuff going on there. And the text makes clear in chapter 1, verse 20, that these lampstands represent the churches, those seven churches in Asia Minor, which in turn represent the church universal. Look at the end of verse 20. It says, As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here's what I want you to get. The broader scene of the revelation of Jesus is the church. He sees Jesus amongst the church. In fact, look at verse 13. It says, And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. This is huge and gives us our first bit of application here. First, I want you to notice that he sees one like a son of man. Some other translations go right to, I saw the son of man. And I I think that is ultimately the point. This is the Son of Man, that messianic title that Jesus likes to adopt for himself in the Gospels, the Son of Man who is like a Son of Man. George Eldon Ladd nails it when he brings out the two facets of this phrase. When he says, while he, that's Jesus, is like a man, he is not merely a man. He is a supernatural being. And at the same time, Son of Man became a fixed messianic expression to designate the heavenly Savior. And it was Jesus' favorite title to designate his own person and mission. I think I read somewhere that that he uses this language like 81 times throughout the Gospels, refers to himself as the Son of Man. So the bottom line is, who who does John see in the middle of the lampstands? He sees Jesus. He sees Jesus in the middle of the lampstands, the Son of Man. One more neat thing about this Son of Man talk is that there is a connection here in Revelation with the text in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, what we see is the Son of Man, that is a reference generally agreed upon to the God the Son, is presented before the Ancient of Days, who sits on the throne. Generally, it's accepted that that is God the Father. Right? So in Daniel chapter 7, you see the Son of Man presented before the Ancient of Days. You see God the Son presented before God the Father. And interestingly, many of the symbolic descriptions of the Son here in Revelation are the very descriptions of the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7. In other words, the way the Ancient of Days or God the Father who sits on the throne is described in Daniel chapter 7 is almost exactly the way John describes God the Son in Revelation chapter 1. And that may blow your mind. You can dig into that a little more later. The point is this. The Father and the Son are one. Jesus says himself, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. They are one in essence. Not in a physical sense, But in essence, they are one. In other words, what is said of the Father can also be said of the Son. And John is driving that home, especially to people who are super familiar with the Old Testament. He is driving that home by using the descriptions of the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7 to describe the Son of Man here in Revelation chapter 1. That's cool stuff. 
First thing I want you to see is that he sees one like the Son of Man. Second, I want you to notice that that Son of Man is in the middle of the lampstands. He is in the midst of them or among them, other translations say. And this is a massive point. And it will be helpful for us to remember that over the next few weeks as we talk about the letters to the seven churches. Jesus is in the middle of his church. Jesus is among his church. He is not far off. He is not unaware. He is not uninvolved or unconcerned. Rather, he is right in the middle, aware, involved, concerned, and at work. In fact, next week, when we get into chapter 2, the language is going to be, he is walking around in the lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, he is walking around, examining and seeing everything that's going on. And is not this exactly what he promised? Did he not, in his earthly ministry, promise to always be with us? To always be among us? Matthew chapter 28, a passage that you're probably quite familiar with, says, Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And what does he say at the end of all that? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you always. Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands. In John chapter 14, he says it like this, verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And then there is this great promise in Hebrews chapter 13, the end of verse 5 that says, For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Here's the point, friends. Jesus is among us. Jesus is among us. And on one hand, that's great news. Right? That is great news. Jesus is here. And on the other hand, that is bad news. Jesus is here. There's a story about an old preacher who would start many sermons by saying, Friends, I've got good news and bad news for you today. Good news is, God is here. Bad news is, God is here. Right? And that is the truth of the matter. Jesus is here. And on the one hand, that's good news. And on the other hand, that's bad news. Let's remember that Jesus is among us. And let's respond properly. Now, Everything that John is going to mention about Jesus' appearance in the next few verses is symbolic. And it points to his greatness, his glory, his power, his majesty, his victory, and his wisdom. And I don't want you to miss that in the midst of the details. In fact, I want those details to enforce and affirm those big ideas. That's why I had Laura read from Revelation chapter 5 a while ago. Because what we see... When the heavenly beings and the redeemed saints get a picture of Jesus and they start to respond, they don't say, oh, I like your white hair and I like your bronze feet and I like your gold sash. That's not the kind of thing they say. They say blessing and honor and dominion and power are yours. All of these descriptions are to lead us to those big ideas. So let's not forget that as we move on to these details. Look at, look at the first detail about his appearance, though. It says, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. This is interesting to me. I remember well when my brother first went to medical school that there was this big ceremony right at the beginning uh, where they gave every medical student their first white coat. Guess what they call that ceremony? The white coat ceremony. Creative, right? You know this white coat I'm talking about, the white coat that doctors wear like real doctors wear. And they get those white coats on the very first day of medical school. 
But the interesting thing about the coat that they get on their very first day of medical school, it's like super short. It's like awkwardly short. Like this jacket that I've got on today is fairly short, but the ones that they give those guys on the first day of medical school are like super short, really short. And as they go through medical school, their coat gets longer. And when they finally graduate from medical school, they get the long coat, which represents their power and authority. This is the closest modern parallel that we have to what's going on in this text. The longer the robe, the longer the coat, the more authority and power. And let me ask you, how long is Jesus' robe? Well, in this text, it says that it reaches to his feet. But when Isaiah gets a glimpse of him, he sees it as longer than that even. I saw the Lord seated on his throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe did what? It filled up the whole temple. His robe is so long that it fills up the whole temple. In other words, he is the one who has all the authority and all the power. Nobody's got a longer robe than him, right? And we want to see that in this text. Not a picture of the clothes that Jesus wears, but a picture of his power and his authority. Now, interestingly, there's a lot of debate about what kind of robe this is. Is this the kind of robe a king wears? Is this the kind of robe a priest wears? Or is this the kind of robe a prophet wears? Because as you read the Old Testament, all three of those officers wear robes. And scholars write chapter after chapter arguing about, this is the king's robe. We see Jesus as the king here. No, this is the prophet's robe. We see Jesus as the prophet here. No, this is the priest's robe. We see Jesus as the priest here. I think that's crazy because Jesus is the prophet, priest, king. He's the only one that's ever held all of those three offices at the same time. And he holds them perfectly. So which is it? What kind of robe is it? It's the only robe that a prophet, priest, king wears. And he will wear it for all of eternity. The answer is D, all of the above. Right? He's clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. Look at verse 14. And his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. This is to communicate wisdom. This is to communicate the wisdom of old age. Proverbs 16, verse 31 says, A gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. We in America have a hard time understanding and rejoicing over gray hair, right? Uh, we want to embrace youth. We want to cover up our gray hair and, uh, and avoid that entirely, right? That's a Western idea. Most places, most cultures in, on the planet see gray hair, you listen to that dude. You you see gray hair, you listen to that woman. You want to spend time with her. You want to spend time with him because they've lived some life and they've got some wisdom. And Jesus here has white hair, like shockingly white hair. He has all the wisdom, all the status of an aged man without any of the weakness, any of the fading strength or the loss of ability of an old man. This white hair of Jesus is not a literalistic description of what his hair looks like. It's rather a definition of his wisdom. That's what we learn from his white hair. Notice next it says his eyes were like a flame of fire. This is communicating his awareness, his omniscience, and his observation, particularly of his church. He sees all, he knows all, and there is a sense of purity to his seeing and his knowing with implications about judgment. The idea that his eyes are like a flame of fire, it communicates judgment and purity as well. John MacArthur says, his searching, revealing, infallible gaze penetrates to the very depths of his church, revealing to him with piercing clarity the reality of everything there is to know. Jesus declared, there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed 
or hidden that will not be known. It's from Matthew chapter 10. And we will see this in the letters over and over and over again. As Jesus walks among his church, he will say to the church in Philadelphia. He will say to the church in Sardis. He will say to the church in Smyrna, I know. I know what's going on here. I know your strengths and I know your weaknesses because his eyes are a flame of fire, are like a flame of fire. Look at verse 15. It says, his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. This imagery is about strength and power and swiftness to act, even in judgment with purity. Grant Osborne says, this reference to the burnished bronze is another military image with the bronze depicting a fierce warrior about to wreak havoc upon the nations. So when we read this picture of his feet, we need to see his strength, his power, and his swiftness to act in judgment. Notice next it says his voice was like the sound of many waters. This is about the power of his voice, the power of his word, and how it is all-consuming. There's a little bit of a correlation here between what we saw in the text last week. His voice was like a trumpet, And now we're reading that his voice is like many waters. Last week, the emphasis about the trumpet was on the clarity and sharpness of his voice. This week, it's about the roar that seems to be surrounding us completely and consuming us entirely. Dylan was talking about this last week, and he said, I was woken up not too long ago by a dripping faucet in my house. That little bit of water got my attention. Drip, drip. If that little bit of water can get my attention so quickly, how much more can the roaring of many waters get my attention? How much more like the sound of Niagara Falls constantly all around me, just overwhelming and consuming me? How much more can that get my attention? That's the way his voice works. Look at verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. The last verse of the text that we're looking at today uh, helps us understand that these stars in his right hand are the angels of the seven churches. We're going to talk more about that later, but for now I want you to notice that he has them in his hand. He has them in his hand as his possession, which is under his protection and his provision and his control. Jesus has these angels in his seven hands, these stars in, in his right hand. And it's his right hand, the hand of power, when we read about it in Scripture. Notice next, it says, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Now, up to this point, you may have gotten away with saying, no, this is a literalistic picture of what Jesus looks like. He really does wear a robe and a sash, and he really has bronze feet and things like that. But when you get to this picture of Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth, you must admit that it is symbolic. One scholar said, if you were to interpret this literalistically, it's a grotesque picture of Jesus Christ. But it's a symbol. It's a symbol of his word. His word that is sharp like a sword. And don't we read about that in other places? Don't we read about the word of God being sharp like a two-edged sword in Hebrews chapter 4 in particular? That says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Jesus has this sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, and he wields that sword, that blade, like a surgeon. 
Like a surgeon, he uses it to cut away that which is bad in order to bring about healing. And Jesus also wields that sword like a warrior who consumes his enemies with his overwhelming power. And you're going to see that imagery later in Revelation. In fact, you're going to see the image of Jesus as the dread warrior who comes on the white horse with that sword that comes out of his mouth with which he will judge and demolish the nations who are opposed to him. This is not a literal picture of Jesus whose tongue is a sword. This is a symbolic picture of the strength and power of his word. And notice next it says, And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. This should make you think of Sinai when Moses meets with God. And Moses comes back down off the mountain, oftentimes, or if he went into the tent and met with God and came out, he would cover up his own face because his face was shining at just being in the presence of God. How much more does the face of God shine with its strength? This should also make us think of the Mount of Transfiguration. We see this very image, uh, imagery used when Jesus is transfigured before John and Peter and James. It also should make us think of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And how we encounter the glory of God in the face of Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. And ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. His face shines with the glory of God because he is God. And look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. All all of those little details that communicate all of these grand truths about his wisdom and his strength and his omniscience and, and his presence among his people. John says, when I saw this, I fell at his feet like a dead man. This, my friends, is the only proper response to such a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see this repeatedly throughout the scriptures. When someone has an encounter with the glory of God... This is the reaction. We see it in Daniel chapter 10. Look what Daniel says. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. We see the same thing in Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, train of his robe filling the temple, angels flying around him saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, right? Who was and is and is to come. They sing this all the time. And what is Isaiah's response? Woe is me. I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I'm telling you, this is what happens when you meet Jesus. When you get a glimpse of the glory of God, you don't walk away saying, eh, I didn't like his robe too much. Eh, the white hair was kind of weird to me. You fall on your face like a dead man. It's exactly what happened to Paul when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Look at it in Acts chapter 22. It happened as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, about noontime, the brightest time of the day, that a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking with me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? 
And the Lord said to me, get up and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that has been appointed to you for you to do. But since I could not see, I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came to Damascus. John saw this and fell at the Lord's feet like a dead man. And it's important here to remember that John was Jesus' best friend. And this vision of glorified Jesus almost killed him. Dylan said in our conversation about this this week that the, lo- the world and the church have a malformed picture of Jesus. And I think he's right. We have a malformed picture of Jesus, and I think the evidence is that we have completely lost our fear of the Lord. The concept of falling at his feet like a dead man is largely foreign to us. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and and he placed his right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid. Don't you love that? That the very one who is so great that the fear of him caused John to fall down like a dead man is the very one who comforts him with his words. This is the exact same thing that Jesus did on the Mount of Transfiguration. As Peter, James, and John were in fear, he said, don't be afraid. He places his hand of power, his right hand, upon John in order to calm his fears. Again, this this is all hinting at the figurative nature of the whole text. If it's literalistic, how does he put his right hand on John if his right hand is occupied with these seven stars? Rather, it's, it's symbolic. It's a picture of greater concepts. But I want us to consider this. The one whom John should rightly fear is the one who calms his fears. Church, I think we should be afraid, like John was. And I think we should need the Lord Jesus to calm our fears. I am troubled that we will never hear Jesus say, don't be afraid, because we have never been afraid of him. I fear that we will never have this moment where he puts his hand on on us and says, don't be afraid, because we've never been afraid of him. What we see in this revelation of Jesus is not Jesus as our homie, our buddy, our pal, our brother even. What we see in this revelation of Jesus is Jesus the king, Jesus the dread warrior, Jesus, the righteous judge. Jesus, the powerful victor. To fall down as dead is right and good in response to this. And it is only by God's grace that we would ever hear him say, don't be afraid. But it is only those who fall at his feet like a dead man who will hear him say, don't be afraid. Notice that's not all he says. He places his right hand on John and says, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. First, I want you to notice the significance of these I am sayings. This is a cool thing, a cool parallel between uh, Revelation and John's gospel. In John's gospel, he records Jesus seven times saying, I am. And that just flies by us and doesn't hit our radar at our at all, But if you were a Jewish person in the first century and you hear someone who has all this messianic cloud f- 
flying around him say, I am? You're going to listen to that. It's going to get your attention because that is loaded language. It's the very name of God that he is taking upon himself. He says, I am. There are multiple I am sayings in Revelation. There are multiple I am sayings in John's gospel. He says, I am the first and the last, the alpha and the omega in another place, the beginning and the end in another place. I'm the one who consumes and stands over all of time. He says, I am the living one. He is not a God carved from wood or formed out of gold. He is the living God, the one true living God. I love that he says, I am, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. This is gospel truth, right? Jesus died for our sins. The eternal one died for our sins and rose again, never to die again. He is the firstborn from the dead, never to die again. And notice it says he, he says he holds the keys of death and Hades. Death and Hades are basically synonyms here. Don't get too lost in that. It's a reference to death itself and the place of the dead. What you need to hold on to is that he says, I've got the keys. I've got the keys to this. And keys in Revelation and in all of Scripture, really, are a matter of authority, power, and control. And Jesus is making a bold claim here. He says, I'm the one who has authority and power and control over death. That is going to be an absolutely key theme throughout Revelation is Jesus' control, power, and authority, not just over death, but over every cosmic force. Jesus is the one who's in charge of living and dying. Only Jesus can give life. And then in verse 19, he continues to speak. He says, Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. This is a basic restatement of the mission John has already been given to write all of this down and to give it over to the churches. And many scholars dive way deep into this business of the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place. As if this is some kind of basic outline of the remainder of the book. Like that what we've encountered so far is about past tense, what we're going to see in the churches, and the letters to the churches is present tense, and everything after that is future tense. Man, apocalyptic literature just does not work that way. It is never that neat. In fact, as we read through Revelation, we're going to be all over the place as far as the timeline goes. We're going to see some flash forwards, like way forward. We're going to see some flashbacks, like way back. We're going, to, we're going to see one flashback that I believe goes back before the fall of mankind. Before the fall of man in the garden. I think it goes back before that. We're going to see some flashes sideways, maybe. We're going to round back around. We're going to come back around and recover some ground. It is just not that neat. But what you need to see here in verse 19 is not this nice, neat division of Revelation, but rather a statement that it's going to cover it all. Like what you're about to be given, John, is going to cover it all. Write the things which are and which have been and which will be. And also, that very language has to make us think about the God who was and is and is to come. Right? That God is God who is not bound by time. He's not constricted by time. He is over all of time. So John has given this basic restatement to write down all of the things that are going to take place. And look at verse 20. It says, As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is super helpful. Like, you should want to say, thank you, Jesus. 
Thank you, Jesus, for clarifying some of this, for teaching us that this is symbolic, that we're not talking about literal lampstands, we're not talking about literal stars, we're talking about something symbolic. He gives us a helpful clarification, and we should be on the lookout for other moments like this in Revelation. When we are given helpful clarifications, first clarification is this, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. These seven churches in Asia Minor, which are real churches in a real time and a real place, but at the same time are also representative of the church of all times and all places. The seven lampstands are the seven churches, and it's significant that they're lampstands. This is a play on something Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The seven lampstands are the seven churches, and the church is the light of the world. Not with its own light that is inherent to itself, but with the light that Jesus gives us. We shine into the world. Jesus also clarifies that the seven stars in the angel's right hand, I mean, in in his right hand, are the angels of the churches. Remember, this is clarification. Jesus is clarifying what the seven stars are. And he says they are angels of the churches. Some scholars go off the deep end here, trying to argue that this reference to angels is actually a reference to the couriers who took the letters to the seven churches. Or... It's a reference to the teaching pastors of those seven churches. And they do this based on the fact that the literal meaning of the word angel here is messenger. But to do that, to say that angels here is a reference to couriers or pastors, is a really difficult thing to do. It would be a very unique usage of the word in the Bible in general, and even more unique in Revelation with all of its talk about angels as heavenly beings. There is no need, in my opinion, no need to read this any other way than the plain way. Because Jesus is trying to clarify it here. That this is a reference to an angel that is assigned to each of these seven churches. What that angel's job is, I don't know. He doesn't really tell us a ton about it. But that angel is in the right hand of Jesus. Under his total control, as his possession, with his protection as a representative of the churches. And Jesus is going to write the letters to the churches through these angels that represent those churches. So no need to say it's not an angel. It's an angel. Let's just embrace that. So here's the summary of all of this. All of this that we have seen, and I know we had to move through it quickly. We had to move through it quickly because of Christmas. uh, Because Christmas is coming. Did you know that? It's like not far away. Seven weeks from today, we will start Advent. Craig Keener says this about this whole text. It's a great summary. He says, Jesus' description here was not to tell us his complexion, but to declare his power. He was the reigning Lord of the universe, the one with the power over life and death. John was writing to persecuted Christians, reminding them that God was bigger than their trials. And that, that, day, that day John's message spoke across the centuries to our church in our trials. Our tension quickly gave way to celebration as we recognized the awesome power of our faithful Lord. Here's the application. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. 
with power and authority and strength and wisdom, purity, presence. In fact, this is Jesus, and this Jesus is here. This Jesus is here, and we should be afraid, all of us. We should not be able to encounter this Jesus and do anything but fall on our faces before him. I'm talking about even us as his people. We should have a box for this kind of fear of the Lord. We should be afraid, all of us. We should not be afraid, some of us. Those of us who belong to him should hear him saying to us, like he said to John, with his right hand on us, by grace, through faith in him, we should hear him say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. If you belong to him by grace, through faith, be afraid, and then don't be afraid. Because he is for you. He is for you, and he has demonstrated that he is for you by dying on the cross and rising again in your place. He is for you. So do not be afraid. David Platt says... So don't fear time. He's the first and the last. Don't fear life. He is alive forevermore. Don't fear dying, for he holds the keys to the grave and to death. It's grace. That's all grace that he would say to us, don't be afraid. And that message is only for those who are rightly related to him. You take a lost guy from the street and give him the vision that John got, And he'll be totally consumed. He will not hear Jesus say, don't be afraid. The sharp sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth will slay that one. Are you rightly related to him by grace through faith? Have you repented of your sins and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ so that you can hear him say, don't be afraid? It's the most important question today. And if you have... If you've had this encounter with Jesus where you've seen him clearly and he has said, don't be afraid, and you survived... Tell people about it. That's part of of what's going on in all of Revelation is John is having this experience and he's being told repeatedly, tell everybody about it. Tell the churches about it. Share this message with people. If you have had an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, if you know him, it is your mission to make him known to others so that they might know him and make him known to others. That's what it's all about. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we we want to circle back and ask that you would open our eyes to see Jesus clearly, even in this moment, to see him rightly, to see him glorified, to see him not as we imagine him to be or as we would prefer him to be, but as he is, as he was revealed to John. Give us spiritual eyes so that we can see what John saw through your word this morning. Not in the same way that John saw it, but through John's vision, help us to see the Lord Jesus Christ clearly. And help us respond properly to the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. To fall down as dead men, to humble ourselves before his greatness, to worship him as the living God. To hear him say, don't be afraid. Though we have every reason to be afraid, don't be afraid. All by grace. God, I pray that you will stand us up and empower us to tell the world about Jesus everywhere we go. Pray these things in the name of Christ.